Welcome to episode 18 of the Digital Fabrication Experiment, a podcast about all things CNC. I'm Winston Moy, and I'm joined by my jet-setting co-host, Eddie Kramer. We're hobby machinists, and we'd like to bring you into our conversations about life in the shop and topics in making. Eddie, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing really good, Winston. It's been a long week, and uh, it's only, what, Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you still uh, crunching out parts for the clients? On hold right now because uh, I have a I'm getting ready to make a trip for the rest of this week. Actually, I leave Thursday, um, going out to Pocket and see and be out there Thursday through Monday. So uh, I kind of just wrapped things up yesterday as far as commercial stuff. I got it still working on a couple of uh, personal projects that I want to wrap up before I leave on Thursday. Everyone saw the seventy seventy five I posted on uh, Instagram yesterday, so that's getting ready to work with that and. Um, yeah, so I'll have that up. I'll have some stuff to show, assuming it's successful. It's my first time to actually cut 7075. Um, I, I can already tell just like looking at the stock. I bought uh, like some one inch round bar and some plate, but the, the one inch round bar, I have a bunch of uh, 6061 round bar. And I mean, the 7075 already looks better. It already looks like it's going to give me a really good surface finish compared to the 60. 61. So I'm kind yeah, of excited about that. I'm surprised it took you that long to, to get into the 7075 game. Like 7075 is something you pay the premium for when you need the extra material properties, you know, that extra strength. Mm-hmm. Um, I, never, I never really thought of it as more of an aesthetic uh, improvement over 6061, but yeah, it looks like it is. And based on the, it seems to be like a little 7075 uh, uh, revival <laughs> going on on Instagram this week. Like everybody's kind of playing around with it. I think Bantam Tools got some and they're, they're, they've been doing some tests and Chris ran some last week. And I can't remember if you, I think you may have done some recently. I, I did, um, last year, uh, a, a rock climbing tool, um, uh, which isn't directly load bearing. So no one get mad at me. Um, but I mean, that extra hardness is just kind of nice to have. So just getting ready to get everything packed and make sure I bring all my gear. I'm going to record a DFX episode while I'm there. Um, our first one without you, because I think you're, you've got stuff going on that same time. I do. Uh, we would have been double booked if that were the case. I mean, I suspect you'll be on the episode. We'll just we'll kind of have a segment where it's a guest seg- guest segment, right? Yeah, that'll be interesting. I'm actually looking forward to to sort of just hearing how you interview without me. I've been doing a lot of research, so I think I'll have uh, quite a bit to ask them. Sounds good. Make sure you have some uh, juicy questions. What else I got going on? Um, oh, um, how so we can talk about the uh, V250 now, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that was announced. Uh, what's today? Tuesday? Uh, late last week. Uh, why don't we fill in everyone else who's listening who might not be keyed in as to what that is? Yeah. Well, first of all, today's we're recording on February 26th. So by the time this episode gets out, uh, by the time it hits the airwaves, so to speak, um, this will be old news anyway, and I'll be back from my trip. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Pocket and C reached out to me, I think it was in November, and asked me if I wanted to uh, help them evaluate uh, update that they were looking at for the, the Pocket and C V2. I have the production V2, which is a 10,000 RPM max uh, spindle. Um, but they had um, they've been working on a spindle upgrade I guess probably all year last, uh, this year or last year, sorry, 
and we're kind of ready to go get some field testing with it before they hit the release date for it. So I think it was around late November. Um, they asked me if I wanted to test, uh, didn't even have a name then. Now it's, it's called the V250 and the original V2 is the V210. Um, and as you would guess from the name, uh, it has a 50,000 RPM spindle, uh, NSK spindle. It's the same spindle that was on the Kickstarter, I guess they would call it V1 now, the original Pocket NC, which I, I never owned that machine, but um, uh, there's still a few people out there with them, but that had a really nice NSK spindle. Uh, it was not paired with the NSK motor though, so it still had a 10,000 RPM limit, so which is really kind of a, a waste on that spindle because it can do so much better. Um, so anyway, this time they uh, they brought that spindle back, which is, uh, it's like a, I think it's two micron run out or less. Yeah, I think I think it's two micron, very, very low run out spindle uh, with hybrid ceramic bearings. And they paired it with the, uh, the genuine NSK motor this time. So we get the full 50,000 RPM. And I've been testing it since, uh, really since December. I couldn't start on it right away. But uh, I've had like two and a half solid months of testing with it here, and they let uh, they gave me the okay to start kind of posting some of the machining action uh, last week. So I kind of like a week before their announcement, I was kind of dropping more and more stuff on Instagram, showing uh, kind of what I'd been doing with it and the tests, uh, tests and various materials. And I think it's like it removes material much faster than the 10K spindle. Um, it's got some limitations as far as tooling, right? Cause it's not, it's not an ER 11 call it. It's a, I want to say it's CHB. I think it's a proprietary, um, NSK call it, um, nice call it system. It's a quick change, uh, toolless tool change on that, on the spindle, uh, just like the old V1. It's got a little lever. You just unclamp the spindle with that, swap out the tool and reclamp it, probe it, and you're ready to go on the next tool. But it, um, I forgot to say. Oh, yeah. So it's uh, limited to three miller, I think three millimeter, uh, one eighth, and four millimeter collets. So that kind of, uh, which is good because really the the spindle, the torque curve, and the RPM on that is really it's a spindle for small tools, right? Uh, small mm -hmm. tools turning really fast. Um, so I did a lot of testing with the Daytron two millimeter and three millimeter single flute tooling, and some other. I had uh, some three millimeter. Uh, two flute and a couple of uh, four flute coated tools. And I tested in uh, pretty much everything you've seen me run on the V210, st uh, stainless steel, 303 stainless, aluminum brass, Delrin. Uh, I didn't show it yet, but I did some some testing in aluminum bronze, which worked really well. And uh, something that didn't work so well on the, on the V210, but works pretty good on the V250 is uh, titanium. So I did... Uh, uh, grade two and grade five titanium testing. Um, actually the grade two I did on the V210, it works like it was really rough. Like I, I think the folks that may have uh, saw those test videos I posted, uh, especially the entry, like I couldn't get a smooth entry with the V210. I think either RPM was just too low for that tool. Um, cause really the machines other than the spindle, they're the same, like the, it's a V2, 10 with the spindle swap out, right? So axis and, and ball screw or lead screws and all that stuff are the same. The rigidity of the machine in theory is the same. The, the spindle housing is a little beefier on the V250, which might make a difference because to me it does, 
it acts like the Z axis has a little more rigidity because that's usually where I run into problems on the V210 is uh, initial entry, like the helix in is kind of sensitive. And on the V250, it's like way more, way more uh, forgiving. <laughs> yeah, I can come imagine in. that housing is a little more, I guess, just better than the using an extended length tool holder. Yeah, actually, that could be it. It could actually be the the motor spindle interface is maybe a little more rigid because um, it sits on the same linear axis that uh, system that's on the V210. So that's kind of the interface point between the the movable part of the axis, right, and the rest of the machine frame. That's exactly the same on the two machines. So um, if there's any extra rigidity, it might actually be in the, or it could just even be like resonance is different um, on the spindle. But anyway, it's kind of interesting. I haven't really figured out where that secret sauce is coming from. It might all just be, you know, the higher RPM give me much lower tool pressure, cutting pressure, making all the difference. Um, I'm gonna have to kind of pick Marvin's brain sometime. He's, he knows the science behind all that and kind of see if I can understand a little bit better why the results are actually, you know, they exceeded my initial expectations. Cause I was kind of looking at that as a, you know, high RPM, uh, potentially lower torque than the V210. I actually don't know. Cause I don't know what the torque is on the V210, but um, I just assumed it, you know, the trade-off with RPM was going to be torque, right? Um, but it actually behaves like it has more torque and more power than the V210's spindle. So again, I think more, more of that's a consequence of how well that higher RPM works with small tools and small tools on these little machines work better than big tools. So, uh, anyway, yeah, I'll have, I'll be posting a lot more. Um, and pocket NC has, uh, all the stuff, all the info and ordering stuff up on their website now. So, um, if you haven't checked it out, I, I would definitely say, go check it out, especially for existing, uh, V210 owners, cause they can get on the list, uh, waiting list for the upgrade if they're interested in, in moving to a faster spindle. And I think even, uh, the, yeah, actually I know the existing V1 owners, uh, also have an upgrade path to, they've, they've always had one to the V210 that now they have one to the V250 also. So I thought that was pretty cool. That uh, that, is, that does intrigue me. Yeah, Not and I think uh, yeah, I know two users already. Be uh, first gen Pocket NC users who are uh, pulled the trigger on V two fifty upgrades. So mostly based on what I they saw on my Instagram page. So I hope they're going to be happy. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, I definitely am. Um, I have both machines here, so I've been it's been nice because I've been able to run a lot of comparisons between the two. Um, and things that, you know, I, what I really focus on stuff that used to give me trouble on the V210. I would try that, see if I could find a workable recipe on the V250. And, uh, uh, other than stainless steel, everything was, uh, much, much better. I'd say stainless steel. I need to work on the recipe a little more. So, um, cause I still, I have like, I use small multi-flute cutters on the V210 for 303 stainless and, um, it worked okay on the 50, but at that, I can't, you know, I'm running that tool so fast that there's quite a bit of heat buildup in the, in the material. I know that's not going to lead to good things in the end for tool life. So, um, I might reduce the flute. I, I got to figure that out. I know there's a good way to get good cut, you know, with a dry machining on the stainless with that machine. I just, I didn't spend enough time on the stainless yet. So I will, I will not, I don't think I even published those, that test. That's the one I'm going to wait until I get better, better data. Um, but, but my speeds and feeds, I think for titanium grade two and five are out on Instagram and aluminum and brass. Um, and then I'll have, uh, 
I think at some point that data will feed back to Pocket and see, and they'll get their speeds and feeds table updated for the 50 pretty soon. So yeah, I've been real excited about having that. And it's been like so hard to keep that secret because <laughs> I, was, I was getting such like crazy results with it. And I got like tons of video footage um, that I'll still be leaking out or not leaking, but slowly trickling out on Instagram. Um, it's all, you know, it's old by now, but uh, it'll be the first time it's been seen because actually no one else is going to have a V250 until I think it's still two or three months away. Like uh, you get on the list now, but there's a lead time, right? So you've got the Instagram market cornered on uh, high speed spindles. Exactly. So uh, anyway, so that's going to be, uh, there'll be more of that coming up over the next month or two. I probably got about through 75% of the various tests of material and cutter combinations I want to do. Um, just got a new tool in today, actually, from uh, from Emco for running that test in uh, titanium again. And also, I'll, I'll try it on stainless steel. It's actually, I don't know if this the spindle is so new to me, the cutting characteristics and stuff. I'm kind of willing to try anything to see how it works. So this is a, actually a five-flute uh, coated cutter flat end. I think it's one-eighth inch. So we'll see how that runs in some of the harder materials. I'll try it on the V210 too. May actually run better. Five flute. Yeah, it's a five flute. Uh, it's actually it's optimized for like titanium and steel. Huh. And yeah, that's, that's actually a pretty wild. common tool to run in in titanium, um, but not on small hobby machines. So it may actually be very you know may turn out it's not the right tool, but the only way to find out is to test it right. Um, yeah, and I know I think it'll actually run pretty good on the. Uh, V210. The 50, I don't know, with that RPM, it could actually be really, really good or it could just be uh, a little too much. So we'll see. So I hopefully, uh, once I get back from my trip, I'll, I'll test, I'll run that test. And then uh, I have actually, I think you got the same care package I got from uh, Carbide 3D. I got a bunch of uh, single flute. I mean, it, it really wasn't a package. I just walked into Rob's office and he handed me a bunch of cutters. But yeah, we do have the same uh, same set of tools. Yeah, so uh, looks like some new single flutes uh, coded this time, CRN, which I've been uh, always kind of wondering if there was going to be some coded, good source of uh, coded tools. I, I take that to mean these these single flutes are intended to be run in aluminum and not just Delrin, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, the the initial thought is aluminum, just because I've been extolling the virtues of single flutes to the guys at Carbide 3D for a while now. So we're going to try it out and maybe like no promises, we might offer an uncoated version. But uh, I think for, for a hobby machine, the uh, the flexibility and chip load versus RPM, like the single flutes are, I'm I'm pretty excited about them. Now, you, most of your testing has been on the Nomad, right? I don't know if you've run any of these in, on the Shapeoko yet. Correct. I've run, I've run the Shapeoko once or twice with them. I really need to do more. Um, but really, I've just been trying to stress test it. And so don't tell Rob, but I mean, I put like seven hours of machining on one of the eighth inch single flutes, um, just doing my uh, Autodesk cam challenge part. And I mean, I, I crashed it twice. The Pocket NC crashed it three times. And I was still getting an okay surface finish on it. So um, these things hold up pretty well, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my experience with the Datron single flutes too. Um, I have one here; uh, it's actually labeled now, so I can keep track of it. But it's the one I used. Uh, it's a two flute single. Or I'm sorry, not two flute. It's a two millimeter single flute that I've run in. 
uh, on the NSK machine. I've run it in aluminum, brass, which is no big deal. Then I ran it in both grades of titanium, um, which I thought was going to ruin the tool, but actually it, it cut really well in the titanium. I was kind of, I think I mentioned it before, but I was copying it. But IGS Dan did on his Datron on uh, that John Son or John Grimsmo titanium scrap piece. Um, pretty much ran his same formula, but with a lot less power. <laughs> same speed and feed, but lot or same. Sorry, same speed, not the same feed. Um, but it worked, and and um, I have not run that tool in steel. That's I know better than do that. But uh, I was expecting it to kind of not survive the titanium. But I went back and ran it in aluminum on a bunch of parts after that, actually even some production parts and it's still cutting great. It's like, and that was not a new tool when I got the NSK. I mean, that one's had some miles on it. I think it's uh, the one I used when I switched over to single flutes for the spinners that what last batch I did was with that tool. So I like, <laughs> I have new ones like with the ready to go, but uh, you know, I figured I was going to be breaking one of those out. Nope. This guy's still going. So I'm going to keep using it out. I'm going to see kind of just where it ends up. Um, that's that's the you know since it's been abused already i don't i don't mind abusing it some more in some other material but yeah it's really surprising i really thought i was going to break it in the grade five um it didn't even really get well it's hard to say the material did not get hot like it did in stainless i haven't um of course i haven't run a single flute in stainless but but the stainless uh on the nsk it got like warm warm to the touch uh cool the tool was still cool and same thing with when i cut the titanium i didn't notice any heat anywhere I know there, there had to be some at the cutting surface, but... Are you running air through the spindle? So I have the kind of a pre-production test mule, and one of the test... Um, I guess one of the variables, right, they wanted to figure out um, or, or kind of get more data on was how, how well the spindle holds up without air cooling that NSK recommends. Um, so normally, yeah, you'd run air through the spindle motor and the spindle, which does two things for you, right? It cools this the the bearings, which are turning at 50,000 RPM, they're tiny little bearings, right? So you want to keep those cool. And it also creates positive pressure to keep any kind of debris from making its way into those bearings at the spindle nose and it cools the motor. Um, and I think, I don't know about this for sure cause I haven't run air, but I think it also, you know, the air exits from the nose of the spindle. So I think it also might help with chip clearing the exhaust. I don't know if it's really enough pressure there, but, um, but I think, in the end, even though I didn't have any problems running it without air, uh, spindle's still going strong here. I think they end up uh, with the recommendation on the website. Actually, I don't think it's a recommendation. I think they they pretty much you know say if you want to uh, keep the warranty that you have to run air, and they sell the or they include the the filter and regulator and all that stuff with the V two fifty. You just have to go get your own air supply. A lot of the places they're selling will have shop air. If they don't, I think they had some at least one uh, solution that they recommended that you could buy. It's more like the kind of what we were looking at, the aquarium pumps, a little bit more powerful, uh, actually quite a bit more powerful, but not, not a, what I would consider like a shop air compressor. Yeah. The manufactured by Gast. Um, yeah. Pretty, pretty sturdy unit. And yeah. uh, they are, I think oil free and rated to run for like hours and hours and hours. So it's a, uh, I think that'd work pretty well paired with uh, the needs of the pocket and see. Yeah, I think, um, I, I don't, I can't remember if it needed, it didn't seem like it needed a lot or pretty demanding um, air supply. It was, I think it was pretty low flow rate and low pressure. I think it was 30 PSI. That's what they were uh, required at the inlet. But anyway, I'll be, um, when I get back from my trip, I'll be, uh, probably be the 
a regulator kit waiting for me so I can hook up air here. Now, at some point I'll get the air running through the spindle like the production machine so I can kind of start. I mean, I'll, I want to run it a little bit more the way it is now just to kind of finish my durability testing. But yeah, I'll get air hooked up to it. Uh, Maybe too late, right? I don't know. Because <laughs> I've run it so much without it. If if the spindle gets destroyed, I mean, they kind of have to send you a new one, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's still like I will continue to do testing with this machine. Um, like I said, you know, I have some material tool combinations that I want to uh, kind of finish. It'll just basically go on to be a test machine. Get You know, as parts fail, we'll, I'll get that data to them. They'll send me replacements and potentially make changes if they need to, right? Um, just like they did on the V2. The V2... Uh, model number, I mean, the first serial number V2 was a little bit different than the last serial number V2, right? So they made improvements all along the way. Um, little ones, you know, just some of them are just production, not necessarily functional changes, and some were functional. Um, anyway, so I think uh, I'll continue to try to see what I can break on this machine. Uh, so far, haven't broken anything on it. If I could burn the spindle out, I'll get a new one. If I get a new one, for sure, I'll start from with air from day one. But so far, so Because then you'll actually be invested in uh, keeping it alive. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll, you know, if it fails because I ran it without air, then we'll know, right? You can basically expect it. If it's having any effect, it's probably just shortening the spindle life, right? It'll show up on the tail end. They can't do a post-mortem on the bearings, can they? They can't. Like, could you just send it in now and they could just crack it open, take a look? Yeah, I don't know if they want, I'll ask them if they want to. They're probably going to wait till, till it shows some sign of... Uh, something going wrong or imminent failure, right? So I do, uh, yeah, I mean, they, so the interesting thing is, you know, Pocket and C, that being the, the same spindle that was on the V1, they actually have quite a bit of experience, I guess, and uh, maintenance and support track history with it. Of course, not running at 50, right? Yeah, although the, the thermal the thermal issues, like, they the intensity of that heating increases almost exponentially. Yeah, and actually, I think um, in this case is you can run it without air 25K and below, right? B- above 20, I, I don't quote me, it could be 20K, but somewhere in that range, like 20, 25K, if you go above that, then you have to have the air. Um, that's kind of NSK, the, the manufacturer's recommendation when, that I read. I don't know what they, you know, they may have told Pocket see something different because maybe they're, I don't know if they, it's actually the same as the retail spindle that I was looking at in their catalog. I don't know what, you know, they may have done something different, right, for Pocket NC. I don't really know, but um, I would assume it really follows the same kind of guidelines and recommendations that NSK publishes for the for the uh, production. I don't even know why they, they publish something like that, because if, I mean, most of the users of the NSK spindle, I'm assuming, are in a professional setting, so running air would be almost a no-brainer. Yeah, I don't know. So, I mean, the spindle gets, um, so traditionally, I think that spindle, like the the use, the applications for it uh, are grinding, like very common use for that spindle, not necessarily an end mill on there, but a, a grinding wheel. And um, which you definitely would want air, <laughs> right? You don't want that stuff, that crud getting in the air. Yeah, barracks. that's uh, yeah. not good. Yeah, positive pressure. And actually, there's a little dust boot that you can add, I saw in the catalog, um, that you're supposed to put on there if you use grinding that might be good even in, for the kind of stuff we're doing uh, to keep junk out of the bearing. I don't know. There might be some trade-off running that, some RPM limit or something because of friction, but because it looks like it actually kind of sits over the, the tool shaft. Yeah, like I see these spindles on a lot of lathes kind of as a live tool. 
on a machine that doesn't normally have a live tool, kind of just a, a bolt-on live tool or high-speed spindle. I, mean, I don't really know that much about NSK. I just started kind of learning more about them when, uh, when I got this machine. Um, I was pretty familiar with like the NSK air bearing, or I'm sorry, air spindles, but uh, I didn't realize they had DC spindles that went up this fast. That, that was part of the product line. So that was kind of cool to see that. Tell me a little more about your, uh, your trip. You went to WorkbenchCon last week, right? I did. And um, it's, I, I went last year. That was the first year they ran the event. This year, um, they, they increased the size. They moved the venue into downtown Atlanta instead of being on the outskirts. And so it, it was just a little more mature, a little more polished, although I kind of like that rustic vibe of being in like a warehouse previously. Uh, but this year, everything just seemed to be done to a slightly higher level, like more networking, uh, more like just FaceTime with people. And I, I kind of appreciated that, although I... Uh, went a day early, so I got to partake in a, a little more of the uh, uh, rubbing elbows with people. Um, there's a woodworker who put together uh, a group trip to uh, Highland Woodworking, which is this awesome shop um, in Atlanta. It has like a whole bunch of tools. They've got like a whole wall dedicated to Festool. They've got an upstairs where you just have like hundreds of uh, bandsaw blades just hanging out. Um, all sorts of tools, a lumber section, um, and we, we had like probably like 40 people just show up unannounced in this store, and it was a whole lot of fun. Uh, we had like um, Jimmy Duresta, um, Jaco, whatever, uh, all the way from Italy, and just a whole bunch of other people. Like I, I knew half of these people already, and uh, just getting to hang out, uh, checking out some hand planes, and uh, seeing what's new in the world of like finishing, and uh, admiring some of the, uh, they had a stare at cabinet so I could just look at all the, uh, the different metrology stuff. It, it was a good time. And then, uh, the conference itself, once that rolled into the, the, the swing of things, um, was just a lot of, um, well, the, this, the breakout sessions they had were, were mostly like social media clinics. Um, last year they had Lincoln Electric there, and this year I don't think they they didn't do it. I think it's because they're doing Spring Make. Um, but uh, I, I kind of wished there were uh, maybe more hands-on, like uh, hard skills-based sessions instead of just like learn how to like make videos and use Pinterest. Um, but it, it's still good information, and if it's your first time going, you'll you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, but for me, it was sort of a rehash of everything I heard before. But I did get to spend a lot of time talking with uh, other makers I look up to, and I got interrupted a lot by people who wanted to say hi to me, uh, which was kind of interesting. I'm in that awkward space, like one tier down from the big guys and, and still high enough up there that people are looking up to me, which is weird to say. Uh, so I think it's just overall a good chance to get to talk with people across a wide spectrum uh, within the the maker hobbyist uh, like woodworking machinist world, uh, there were a good number of people there with CNCs, but uh, I don't know. I kind of almost want to push the idea of having like an intro to CNC session there um, because I think having more actionable hands-on skills uh, would be good to introduce people to. But uh, w let's not get ahead of ourselves. Yeah, it's kind of like the three D printer guys basically get them, you know get them more information about CNC mills. And I think they would be like, a lot of it's just mystery, right? Really not everyone kind of 
just like me, I didn't know exactly what what was what it's doing and what it can do, right? Um, like what the I guess what the the value case was for uh, like why would I want a mill if I have a printer? I can make stuff already, right? So um, so yeah, I, I would I would say like that education piece, just inf informational, right? Not necessarily uh, evangelizing, but just say hey, you know, what you guys do is really neat. Um, you could even kind of expand a little bit into something uh, di yeah, broader or different, right? With the, this is one possibility, right? If you're looking for something to kind of add to your, your two belt. So that's cool. Is it, uh, was the conference much bigger this year? Like, is it kind of still? I think they had about a hundred more people. It's really just the venue change into downtown, which makes it just a short walk from our, our hotel or in my case, an Airbnb. I mean, you got to see a little more of the city instead of like waiting around to get shuttle and debating whether or not you want to stay a little longer and take a later shuttle or an Uber. Uh, so just the interactions with everyone was just a little more fluid. Yeah, it sounds like you had some, you know, kind of international travelers coming in or makers, right? It wasn't just local. Yeah, well, uh, Jaco, do you follow him on Instagram or YouTube? No, I don't. He's actually uh, sort of a technologist uh, maker. He's He recently... Uh, uh, went to an auction for a shop that was closing up and he really wanted an EDM machine. And so he put out a bid, but the conditions of the bid necessitated that he take all the other equipment with him. So he's got like an old Mazak or something. And like, he's got like two big uh, VMCs that he's got to move to his own shop. Um, he's got a really cool uh, YouTube series out from a year or two ago called uh, Because I Can, where he makes things like, like 100,000 RPM fidget spinners. So his mind works in interesting ways, and uh, I was really keen on meeting him. And um, just he he recognized me right off the bat, just because he is also sort of active in the the learning how to CNC world. So uh, it, it was cool to get to know him. But uh, they they really just invited him to, uh, I guess he's a he's a non traditional maker from like the woodworkers and and the like the builders but um he's he's sort of like a better fit for maker fair but i was still glad to see him there yeah that's my favorite kind of maker <laughs> uh, the non-traditional right so um do me a favor yeah put um put his uh ig and youtube stuff in our trello uh yeah we'll do episode and i'll make sure he gets in the show or his links get in the show notes and i will check them out myself i'm it's kind of weird because like actually i follow so many people now um and I don't always remember, like definitely don't necessarily know their real names. Um, I know them by their handles, a lot of time Instagram handles. So uh, you, know, you may talk to me about somebody by their name and it takes me like 10 minutes to realize, oh yeah, I know it. I follow that guy all the time. <laughs> Just didn't realize that's who you're talking about. So who knows? I may already be following him. Um, the spinner thing actually kind of rings a bell. So so are you, uh, you kind of at the point where you think you might be looking to make the move to a, uh, like a presenter position next time? I'm not volunteering for it. I don't know. If that's what it takes to make it happen, I'll do it. Um, I I don't know. It's still weird for me to be in a position where I'm teaching people. It, at least, like, behind behind a computer screen, I'm fine with it because I can do all my research and I have plenty of time to, to uh, prepare. But doing something in person still kind of weirds me out. Yeah, you could at least... Uh teach people how to make high quality videos because that's <laughs> that you're <laughs> I, I don't think i could ever compete with uh with your videos on youtube that's 
it's it's almost depressing when you you know contemplating starting a channel and and looking at what I'm up against. <laughs> well, I mean, my own channel's kind of stagnant right now. I've I've got a lot in the queue, but it's really just making carbide 3D videos right now that have been taking up a lot of my time and I like I'm actually reducing the quality of those videos so I can get them out faster. Like they're they're a little less produced. There there's a lot less sort of behind the scenes fusion stuff. I'll I'll sort of show my feeds and speeds. But for the most part, I'm just talking over uh, shots of the machine doing its thing. You've got a chance to to break into the market. Yeah, I think that, that's kind of the trade-off, right? So, I, um, do you focus on maximizing your time for like the projects, the actual working, or do you spend it all in post? Right, <laughs> you got a budget right there, a time budget, and um, you seem to do a pretty good job of of kind of finding the balance. Um, I think speaking of good videos, I, I liked your your submission for a Autodesk Cam Challenge this year, the way the video was headed. I'm, I'm not even talking about the project yet, which is pretty crazy and awesome. But um, the time lapse and the the way that the whole, you had like, it, it was one minute long, right? It was, I'm trying to remember. It, it was 53 seconds because that uh, just happened to be an audio clip that I could uh, pair it with that worked. Yeah. So that was like one of the best uh, Instagram linked videos I've seen in a long time, machine videos um and honestly there's so much there that i wish i could have put in but just the time constraints of making it fit uh i i didn't have a lot of room to work with and that was real time right the the, the machine only took a minute right uh yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so i'm gonna be knocking these things out left and right yeah. so uh, after after this i'm gonna make two or three articles and i'm never gonna make these things again at least not in the current fashion i do if you guys haven't already checked out Winston's, uh, I, I think you had some some of it up on Instagram. Uh, it's definitely on the uh, the Autodesk uh, Cam Challenge results page or gallery, I should say. But, um, yeah, Winston worked on a part that was uh, aluminum on uh, aluminum five axis part on the Pocket NC that was uh, based on its actual its size. For one thing, it was kind of right at the limit of. Uh, Probably a little over. <laughs> that was part of the challenge, right? I had less than an eighth of an inch of margin. If this part were taller, it, it would not have fit. Yeah, I think that's, um, other than maybe Johnny uh, Q90's run some pretty crazy stuff on his pocket and see, uh, but that was, I think that's still, I don't think I've seen anything quite that hard, <laughs> right? Like that that was a big one to, 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 to chop off on the pocket and see. Yeah, that's nine hours of machining. It, it it did shockingly, despite numerous crashes. Uh, I had a, a day where the pocket NC was acting up. I think the firmware got corrupted, uh, so it just like halfway through a cut, it would just start wandering off on its own. And so I just had so many setbacks uh, that um, I was honestly shocked that I had a finished part at the end of it. And can you say you were doing that? That was a collaboration with uh, Alice Kotak, right? Was. Yes, uh, she is up in Canada. She is uh, pretty big in the Nerf modding community um, and also just a really good fusion designer. Uh, so she reached out to me with a part that she thought would be good for 5-axis. I looked at it, did a little couple small tweaks for uh, to make it manufacturable. Um, clearly did not make enough tweaks because there were some points where um, my toolpaths, like, they didn't quite work out. So uh, one of the design things that I know is a sort of a guideline I don't practice enough is that radii should be like 1.5 times the uh, radius of your cutter, just so that 
um, when you go into that corner, you're not engaging um, like 90 degrees of that cutter. And there was uh, the the dart feeding lip, which was sort of that, that hat brim looking extension that comes out of the part, uh, where as my cutter went around that in a parallel toolpath, it would dip down and it would hit uh, the wall of that lip and the wall of the uh, the the sort of the, the chassis part of it, and uh, it caused a ton of chatter. So I need to go back for the second article and uh, increase that radius just a little bit, so that I don't get that uh, weird grabby bitey action on the end mill. It's it's just. Is it just kind of tearing into a bit of thicker material there, or is it just more it's of a tool It's suddenly clearance? engaging around a larger uh, arc around the end mill. And so when it grabs, uh, the, the pocket density is not super rigid. And so I'm either getting tool deflection or machine deflection in the rotary axes, and it's gouging out the part. And I, I realized um, you can use feed optimization to a point in Fusion 360, to uh, sort of slow it down. Um, but I was looking at the toolpaths when I enabled that, and the uh, reduced feed uh, segments don't extend back far enough. Like, usually, like if I'm doing a parallel toolpath and I'm going over the edge of the part, the, the, the tool goes straight down and straight back up, basically. And I, as soon as it starts going down, I want it to reduce the feed rate. And it's it's like the last millimeter before it turns around where it's actually starting to slow down, which is, in my opinion, too late because by then you've already started grabbing at um, the, the material in the sidewall. Um, so during the first uh, run of this toolpath, before I had uh, feed optimization, um, I was actually just manually dragging the feed rate slider all the way down. Um, and this was a 5,000 step over parallel pass. So I was doing that like 100 times. Um, but it was either that, or I'd have to abort my parallel finishing, uh, start from scratch. Um, actually there was no alternative because the feed rate, uh, feed optimization, uh, wouldn't have fixed my problem completely. Uh, so I basically had to just babysit the entire parallel finishing op, which was like an hour and, and just fiddle around with the, uh, the feed rate slider so that. Um, when it was dipping down into those parts where it wants to grab extra material, it's just feeding at like five percent. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I don't know if you got video of the problem areas too. I'd like to see that. Uh, yeah, there there were there were many. I've got um, my uh, Final Cut Pro uh, project library for this for just the first article is like hundred and fifty gigabytes. So I've got a lot of footage to pull from. Hopefully the second one will go faster. Yeah, some of that, um, like some of my problems, like, well, I've had like two things. I, I'm a big advocate of like videotaping, especially you doing something new. Um, even if you're never going to show it, just, well, I was say, just as, you know, a data collection uh, method, right? Because when I was doing the testing with NSK, I have like all kinds of boring footage, but, but it's good footage, right? Because um, either like sometimes something goes wrong unexpectedly and you don't necessarily... Like it happened so fast, right? What what happened, right? You can go back and look at the video and usually kind of see, it helps you, right? Uh, to post mortem on what went wrong. Um, like you might actually see the part, maybe the work holding wasn't good and you can see the part slipped, right? You see it on the video. Um, or you can watch like the rotary axis just like, just juddering like as soon as like you, you hit some chatter. 
yeah, you'll probably, you know, as you look through that, that library, that huge library, <laughs> um, yeah, you'll probably see something, you, you know, maybe it was going on that you didn't, you weren't expecting, you didn't even know happened. So, yeah. Yeah. For me, it was helpful when, when I had that, uh, apparent corruption issue, uh, just to be able to go back and, and look at it. Cause like there were times where I didn't believe my eyes that the machine was like, just like going off in the wrong direction i had to look at look back at it again yeah it, it was just super weird that like wait did it really just go like rapid through stock and um just having that on video to confirm like really helped and also like since i've like crashed parts on the shape Oko multiple times um just being able to go like if i'm not there i don't quite know what went wrong so uh, having that video helps to uh, sort of diagnose failures yeah yeah, like, oh, there was a fire. <laughs> that one, right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry, not funny. But... Which is really just... <laughs> well, that's what that's that... all right. I, I already have uh, the uh, the AFO ball bolted to the top of my enclosure. And I've actually, I moved it to like the center of the, the ceiling um, because that's like a more likely area where fire will actually reach the uh, the roof of the enclosure as opposed to like off in the corner. So it'll, you'll, it'll activate quicker. Yeah. And your heat will be at the top anyway, before it's anywhere else. So hopefully that will never have to uh, get tested. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's, it's pretty messy to clean up. Yeah. I bet. And it, it's not exactly, uh, it, it'll make you jump out of your shoes. <laughs> that goes off. <laughs> it's literally a firecracker inside a dry powder extinguishing agent. Yeah. I saw the, there's a, a, YouTube video of like where they're just playing around with it, trying to set it off with like a, a torch and reverse engineering it or kind of figuring out how it works. And yeah, it looks like it's basically a pyrotechnic device. So what else going to say? Um, yeah. So that part before the podcast, I didn't even know, uh, what the outcome was. I, I looked good on the video. I just, some, I was wondering if it was actually, uh, a part you considered successful. It sounds like it was. It is. Um, so the, the way this collab is going to go is she's going to get two of these that I mailed to her. One of them she'll put in her own blaster. One will go in one that she's modding for me. Um, so I'm going to get the the crappier looking one, um, which is this first article. And hopefully the next one is better. So one thing I've been trying to do is um, because it's got some a lot of flat areas, a lot of contoured areas, the... The contoured areas that I have to finish with the ball end mill, I'm doing with a parallel toolpath, so it sort of has a brushed look. Um, but constraining those toolpaths to sort of apply it, uh, the toolpath all around the barrel and all around the front, in a way that all like all the streaks are in one direction, is uh, a little tricky. Um, so I'm just I'm trying to figure out the best way to do that, and it comes down to uh, hitting that barrel section from like. Uh, three or four different sides so that all the uh, the lines of that ball and mill are moving in like a parallel direction and then um, once I increase that radius I'll hopefully get rid of some of that chatter and uh, I think I'm going to stick with the same tool padding because uh, right now I, I sort of work my way from the top down um, and it's it's taking a lot more tool paths uh, the, the fastest way to do this would be to just throw adaptive on everything except for a tab at the bottom and then run finishing toolpaths. But the way I do it is I leave the, the bottom face uh, just completely attached to the, the, the rest of the stock for as long as I can. And then 
and then I, I start whittling away at it near the, the last third of my toolpaths. But um, it's it's not the easiest to, to work around because I'm using a lot of like, oh, let me throw adaptive on the top half, adaptive on the bottom half, uh, use rest machining. And um, the, the calculation time on everything is, is actually pretty substantial, especially because I have to simulate everything so I can visually ascertain that I haven't missed an area. Um, because if I do, and I run a finishing toolpath on some place where there's actually stock left, it's going to crash the machine. So, um, it's, it's just a lot of visual analysis. And, uh, because the toolpaths are so long, if I'm like halfway down, I've got to hit simulate, show the stock, wait for the, the visualization to catch up to wherever my playhead is, and then, uh, just start poking around, look around the model and see which areas still need to be machined. I mean, is it slow on the model side or just in cam simulation? It's the cam simulation. It takes like 20 to 30 seconds for it to sort of regenerate the model up to the point where I want to see whether or not my toolpath is crashing or not. Yeah, because the reason I asked, like one of the things I ran across, and it's happened enough now that I kind of... I'm pretty sure I'm on to something <laughs> is uh, like if you have any kind of um, like I do a lot of uh, small like logo engraving. What I found is if I have like text on that I'm embossing or extruding as like in, as a pocket on uh, for in preparation to engrave with trace or something like that, that feature, once I do the extrude, it's like it really slows down, but it slows down on the modeling side and on the cam side and actually fusion a lot of time gets gets a little unstable uh, but it's really noticeable on the simulation like when you're trying to navigate the the timeline or the you know the media player right inside cam simulation um so what i found is like i i'll go in and either suppress that feature or um or basically just put it in another component and bring it in after i'm done with all my cam and do that last uh makes a huge difference and it's just i think it's just in the ui that it's slow i mean Everything you know, the toolpaths and everything work fine. It's just for some reason it seems to slow down the app itself. And I think there's just either a lot of points in that, or it's a, a dense sketch is probably where it is. I think it's it's tied to you know Fusion's had problems with the complex sketches impacting performance. So I know they're working on that, but um, I think this is just a side effect of that. But anyway, it's something I, it's easy to once you realize what it is, it's easy to actually kind of temporarily work around by. Um, either disabling that component if it's a component or um, suppressing the feature or like I said, I just, I usually have an assembly and put that piece like separate and bring it in and kind of do a separate cam pass for that. It's too bad you can't keep it in there. Cause I had to um, actually put a patch over some of my text because it was pocketed down uh, to stop my parallel toolpaths from like dipping into it. Um, but I mean, that information about all those points and that sketch is still active in the model. So I, I guess that probably wouldn't help the uh, the issue with performance. Yeah, I know, like, if you suppress, it definitely will have an impact. I mean, a, a positive impact, right? Um, and you can't always suppress, right? There could be dependencies in the in the parametric cam or CAD, right, that you, you could end up breaking your geometry if you suppress certain features. But usually on the engraving, there's nothing kind of... There's nothing usually dependent on it because uh, it's usually like at least the way I do it. That's kind of the last thing I bring in, uh, like my fillets and my my 
chamfers and if I put a logo or something on, I do it at the end of the modeling. So it's pretty easy to just go in there and suppress that feature if it's giving me some problems, um, do all the cam and everything with it off and then turn it on at the last minute and finish up my cam tool path the engraving. And, you know, it gets slow again once I turn it back on uh, or unsuppress that feature on the model side, but it doesn't have to impact all the, all the other work in cam. So anyway, there's something to look out for. I think, you know, it's one of those things that eventually it's not going to be an issue. They'll, they'll kind of keep working on the solver and, and sketch performance. Um, it's definitely a lot better than it used to be. I used to actually have trouble just getting the model to load if I had a lot of text. And also if, if anyone from Autodesk is listening, uh, if you could make it so that you don't have to regenerate toolpaths every single time you make any small change in the model, I would love you forever. Uh, yeah, that'd be that'd be a tough one. <laughs> yeah, but there's just like so many things like oh, I'm going to modify a sketch and a toolpath that has nothing to do with that sketch still requires regeneration. Yeah, I, I, one thing I have noticed, I don't know, I think it's, I don't know if it was a deliberate change they've made or improvement, but um, like now some of the, on the cam, it's not so much the model changes, but if you go into like a, a cam, like say an adaptive toolpath that's already generated and you just edit the parameters for say an adaptive that's already, you know, taken 10 minutes to generate and all I do is change, say the feed rate, it doesn't regenerate. I've noticed that a couple times. Yeah. Which I think it's a good toolpath. I'm not sure, or if it's a bug, right? It's either like it shouldn't have to regenerate, right? It should still be the exact same toolpath. Um, maybe it's recognizing that. Have you noticed any cases where sometimes it won't show a warning or an error next to a toolpath, but when you click on it, uh, no toolpath shows up? Not till you showed the video. No, I haven't had that. Okay. Yeah, I have almost the opposite problem. Like I'll have good toolpaths and you know some that may take a long time to generate and uh i'll save the file right um exit come back another day expecting those tool paths to be generated and they're all like waiting to be generated again it's like and nothing's changed right i don't understand i've noticed that too i thought it was i thought it was a function of like me just working on different computers but uh, if i've closed the program on my mac and i open it the next day on my mac it requires regeneration yeah, my, my guess is there's some caching going on. And if you wait long enough, that cache is purged. Maybe, you know, uh, generated toolpaths might be something that's that's just cached right in the application. You know, it, the expectation is you're going to save out that toolpath anyway. It's a G code file, right? So that's your more permanent history of it or your permanent uh, uh, record of the toolpath, right? I guess. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's kind of weird. So, you know, Fusion gets. Better every every release, but um, you know, especially if I think back two or three years, what it was like. <laughs> I can't believe that. You know, now now we're just nitpicking about little things, right? <laughs> Which is much better than. Uh, there, there's no reason we shouldn't hold it to higher standards. And I know they're working on it. Um, and I definitely like the the trajectory that Fusion has had over the last two years. Um, at least from the kind of the way I use it, it's gotten much much better. So uh, that's true. I remember uh, Pro Engineer, and half a decade later in Creo, it was still just terrible. I haven't lost data or work in, I don't even remember how long now. It's probably 18 months, which um, used to be a pretty regular thing with Fusion, right? Um, I mean, part of that's because I, I think in the bad days, I kind of learned the habit of saving after every change, which is quick. You know, saving in Fusion is quick, but um, it's probably unnecessary now, but I still do it, it's just kind of muscle memory. That's probably saved me from some of the 
some of the issues that some other people have. Um, but I think like the common one, I data loss problem I still see crop up on the forums is uh, uh, the tool library, right? Cloud tool library for whatever reason, like do an update. Yeah, you end up getting your tool library wiped, which I think most of the time it seems like they can recover it, but. Um, it I don't think it's wiped. I had that happen on my desktop. Um, it's not synced. Yeah, it, it's just, it's not syncing. And uh, every other computer I have sees the uh, the original li- or the cloud library just fine, but that desktop just is somehow out of sync with everything else. Yeah, it is. Um, the other common case I see is they open up and the tool library is empty, right? And it shouldn't be, right? They had they know they had stuff in there and all of a sudden there's nothing, um, which I think that's transient error. I think those do tend to, there's a way to fix it without yeah, having to Yeah, I, I think if you just uninstall Fusion and reinstall everything, it, it'll sort of hard reset itself. But I've tried manually clearing like the cache folders didn't help. Um, I've actually got an issue on my my laptop, uh, not the Mac, the one I usually just bring into the garage, where uh, there's a project that perpetually has that like uh, saving ring or that waiting ring on it, and I can't access it. But I can open the project on a different computer. And uh, it's been a week, and I still can't access that on that machine. So after that, um, I just... I made duplicates of my uh that pocket nc uh, autodesk cam challenge project um just because i couldn't afford to not be able to access it so i've actually gotten quite paranoid by these uh recent fusion bugs yeah and it won't let you delete it when it's in that state either <laughs> you're kind of stuck no you can't do anything even if you duplicate it yeah um yeah well one thing i was one little tip at least what i do uh, on the tool library so when i started and it's been a, i mean there was kind of a, a rash of that those problems back when they kind of did the big revamp on the tool library. Um, again, that was probably also 18 months ago, but I never actually had problems with it, but I back up my library. You can you can export your tool library because uh, I have a lot of custom libraries, right? I set up all my tools kind of the way I like them set up. And uh, I see, you can export that to local disks. So I have, I have like six distinct libraries for different things like aluminum or coated cutters or whatever. Um, I have a few that are kind of machine specific. I just like anytime I change those libraries, add a new tool or something, I just, it's kind of habit now. I right click on the tool library, export it to the local drive. Because if anything does go wrong, you can re import from that export and at least recover, you know. If you forgot to save after your last tool you added or whatever, you might lose a little bit of work, but um, the bulk of your library is going to be recoverable, you know, independent of, of what Fusion and Autodesk does. You'll have your own copy of it, right, that you can restore. Uh, so that's that's a good tip. I, I would recommend doing that. Um, you don't have to do it all the time, but every once in a while, take a snapshot of your tool libraries if if it's if it represents a lot of work, right? If you put a lot of work into custom libraries. Um, yeah, for me, probably my my Daytron library. The vendors are making that so much easier now because a lot of the tooling vendors are moving their catalog to a Fusion tool library format, right? So you don't have to enter it in the first place. And I'm trying to take more and more advantage of that. So eventually I probably won't have a custom library that I maintain. I'll just grab a tool out of like the Harvey, Harvey's uh, Fusion Visible Tool Library and drop it into my project that I'm using. So Yeah, they've done a good job of adding it. Um, but I think, does Datron, like you still have to just email a, a sales rep or something and they'll send you back a file? Well, they have the catalog, right? So there's a PDF, of, uh, just like all the other tool vendors. Yeah, say. but there's no like 
Fusion tool library file that has all their stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I don't know if, if Datron has one yet. Um, I mean, that's kind of a new thing. Like Harvey and Helical did it, I don't know, six months ago. And then I've seen a couple others crop up. Um, I, I would expect like over the next 12 months, we'll see a lot more of them. Because uh, I, I don't know, actually, I don't know how they create those, if it's kind of an automated thing or if they, it probably represents quite a bit of work, <laughs> be my guess, to go from whatever, you know, yeah, their internal format um, or their internal data representation to whatever, it's to the JavaScript format that, uh, or JSON, sorry, JSON format that uh, Autodesk is using. Hopefully the, the vendors will keep working on on getting their, you know, basically taking over responsibility for publishing the, the tool libraries for Autodesk products. So this definitely made my life easier for the for the tools that do uh, do have the vendor supported libraries. Um, what else was, oh yeah, I was gonna ask you about one more thing about the Autodesk Cam Challenge. So I know you had you you probably spent a good third of the project just working on the work holding, which isn't unusual for a project like that uh, on five axis. Um, would you stick with that same work holding? beyond the uh, first article part or there there's a couple changes i would make to that right my original uh work holding fixture was just a solid puck of aluminum and uh, after i realized that i needed even more clearance above the table i started removing material from that um, but i was like pocketing away material uh, if i were to make that fixture again i would actually just sort of carve out like an h-shaped uh little piece of metal with uh, mounting holes in the, the forearms and uh, mounting holes for my stock in the middle. Yeah, the customization of the original fixture took like an hour just because of the amount of material that had to be removed. And really, I should just eliminate it. It's almost like webbing between the, the two arms of the H. That's how I would modify that piece. Um, but it's really, you should never have a project that requires you to get that close to the B table. Uh, it just happens to be that part is just so big relative to the work area that I had to like carve out every millimeter of clearance I could get. Yeah, you're using pretty much the full machining envelope of that bucket and see there. But I do like the concept of that work holding fixture. It was more rigid than the rotary axes. Like my fixture was not the limiting factor. Yeah, I was curious because I haven't tried. Uh, and I, I mean, I've considered it, and I, I think it's going to help me, like with some other projects where you, uh, you actually you bolted. So the, you had your basically a plate that bolted to the rotary table, and then you bolted your stock by coming up underneath the plate with some bolts, right, passing them through the bottom of the fixture plate into the base of the stock into threaded holes. I'm assuming in the stock. The the plates, yeah, the plates quarter inch. Uh, the hardware I'm using is like 0.13 inches tall, uh, so there's just enough meat in there that I can sort of uh, bolt and, and clamp everything down to the fixture plate. And uh, just it, there's so little clearance and everything is pretty tight to the B table that there's not much room for movement. Yeah, I had a I had a design where I wanted to do basically that same approach. Um, I had very little spare stock to screw into that was kind of the issue i couldn't really pass long bolts up to it up to the bottom um without the bolts kind of getting into the machined area so i had this like a bunch of really short screws <laughs> like i think i had six of them uh going into the bottom and only extending probably like 
two and a half millimeters. Uh, and these were, I think these were M4 bolts. Um, just going like two and a half. Uh, in, Pretty in, short. Yeah, but I mean, actually, so beyond a certain length, right, the having extra thread engagement doesn't really buy you anything. So uh, yeah, I don't know if I had enough there, but I actually never built it. I ended up figuring out a different way to do it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that kind of, that's a good approach, uh, kind of bolting from the bottom. I think, you know, the 3D, 3D printed risers that I did, they were bolting to the side. Uh, kind of through the front face of the stock. And then I, I think that's not as rigid as what you're doing. So I'm going to, I kind of want to try that again. You had basically you had more of the stock kind of up against the, uh, or in contact with the fixture. Um, and it was done in such a way that it, there was no sort of cantilevering action. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, like across the bolts. Yeah. Yeah. So I like, you know, coming in from the bottom into that plate, that plate's going to be pretty rigid because it's bolted to the table. Um, yeah, I think I was just coming in at the wrong wrong plane, right? I need to come in from the bottom next time. I'll give that a try. I, I like... would offer you my second fixture, but I know you'd want to make one yourself. If I was making your part, I would take it. <laughs> Probably whatever part I'll be making, they'll need something a little different, right? Um, but I will I will definitely take the technique, the, the kind of the concept behind it. Um, and kind of the reason I did that, I could have just bolted straight through the B table like I've done before. But that doesn't give you a lot of rotational uh, stability, like through one screw. It's really just friction that keeps the part from rotating. However, I do want to call out uh, Johnny Q90 for taking that idea and then also dabbing some uh, crazy glue around the, the perimeter of his part um, to make that work. So he was holding a cylindrical puck of material and he attached that to a smaller bit of a one inch round stock that had a threaded stud in it. And so he just screwed those two cylinders together um, and just used some uh, super glue just to prevent that from uh, unscrewing itself. And that seemed to work really good for his project. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and then just, well, if it's metal, he probably just heat it up and it gets rid of it. Yeah, you just take glue. a heat gun or something and yeah. it uh, breaks. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, super glue solves a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everywhere in the world um yeah so that's cool i think uh you know I, i've had the projects where i've struggled and then end up you know coming up with some work holding solution and get the part out and then i swear it's like the very next week i'm on youtube or instagram and i see like something that would work 10 times better it's like if i thought of it right someone else is doing uh work holding for a similar you know similar challenge solving a similar challenge that i may have just dealt with so um yeah, I'm always a big believer in watching, watching other people uh, solve those problems and stealing from them. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> stealing their ideas. Although I will say that like there, there are certain assumptions that have to be made because Johnny had to use a lathe to like sort of true up those two facing surfaces so they'd be flat. With my fixture, I had to stick my stock awkwardly underneath the shape oko and drill in some holes to match the bolt pattern in my fixture plate. So there has to be some sort of stock prep that happens before you can use your custom fixtures. So, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. This is just like, I, I'll do the 3d printer, you know, I'll print an alignment bracket with a 3d printer just to get the material lined up on the, on the CNC machine. Uh, one time use kind of thing, but it, it solves the problem. Yeah. I also like dovetails, like, cause you have to machine that, that matching dovetail in the, uh, the stock. So behind every good five axis CNC, is also a good three axis CNC, most likely. Yeah. 
Yeah, or a stock crimper or something. <laughs> okay, so uh, we've been going on hour and a half here, I think. Hour and ten. Okay, now we're in ten. But once you edit it down, it's it's about time. Yeah. So um, the pocket and see, uh, you know, I talked touched a little bit on on the new machine. Um, I'll have more coming up on Instagram, and then when I get back from my trip to pocket and see, um, eventually we'll have a podcast episode. Uh, with Matt and Michelle Hurdle and the team over there. Um, so I'll probably get a lot more information than I know about that machine right now. So, uh, yeah, so I'll, uh, I have some questions, right? Some questions have already kind of come in on my Instagram page and they've answered some of them. Uh, Puck and see, they, they keep an eye on it. And a lot of them actually were already in the fact that they put out with the, uh, when the machine was announced. Um, most of the questions are more around, Hey, I have an older machine can I upgrade and, you know, I basically just defer those questions to pocket and see, but uh, some of them are around, you know, kind of what material removal rates are you getting and tell me a little bit more about this spindle. Um, so I know what I know about it and I'll probably know a lot more next week. So, uh, yeah, expect some more, an update on the B250 on um, the next episode. How about you? What you got planned for this week in the shop? Hopefully I can wrap up... Um... So I started the Material Monday series of Carbide 3D videos. Next week will be Machinable Wax. And then hopefully after that, I can do some, maybe some plastic. I'm thinking cast acrylic and also some of the acrylic panels that they have uh, stocked in the store. And then also just catching up on my video backlog. Because um, those those stars that I made in your, in your shop and uh, just with surface finish testing, still haven't made a video about it. And... Uh, I got to make a video for each of the fixer plates that I tried on the pocket NC and then get around to the actual, uh, nerf blaster cage video. So I've got like five or six videos, like in the queue, just for my own channel on top of everything I'm rushing to get out for carbide 3d. Um, so that's all I got going on this week. <laughs> Not too much. Hey, um, so about that wax machining. So I, I, for the first time, uh, ran some wax, on the actually on the v250 last week uh really kind of in preparation i, I was going to try to make a run at um Autodesk camp challenge but i i uh, had a feeling i wasn't gonna have enough time and i sure didn't but um i'd kind of started to do a little research on the project and uh was cutting the parts and wax first because it was fast for developing the cam uh before question yeah. for you what kind of sfm were you using or getting with that uh, machining up uh you talking about on the wax yeah oh, so i i just guess i don't think i even looked up speeds and feeds for wax i just basically ran i ran the spindle at uh i sewed it down so like an aluminum it'll run at 50k right so i i've done finishing at 50 um with a ball and mill and metal but um for pretty much anything else roughing adaptive clearing i'll run at 40k uh with a two flute or i'm sorry a two millimeter in mill which seems to be the sweet spot at that uh, 40k is kind of the uh, power peak for that spindle, and um, but for wax, I was worried you know that might generate a little too much heat, melt the wax. So I think I slowed it down to 30, 28 or 30k. That's still really fast. Yeah, and um, single flute cutter. So, um, so at least you're getting good chip load. But still, that's like my my testing on the Nomad. I'm just gonna tell people to aim for an SFM of like under 300 
which you, I know you have to do the metric conversion. We can uh, edit out your math. I'm pretty sure I could have cut it as fast as the machine could go, both RPM and... Well, so at 8,000 RPM, I was aiming for a uh, 6,000 chip load, and that maxes out like the, the travel speed of the Nomad already. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I got you. So you, you, you would go... I mean, as far as feed rate, you would go as fast as the machine could go and then adjust RPM. To, to hit a certain chip load. And at like eight or nine thousand RPM, like your your surface footage is still under three hundred, which I think is pretty good. And there was a um, someone had a PDF on how to machine machinable wax, and they were talking about industrial machines. So they had a a half inch end mill as the recommended roughing cutter, and they were saying like two thousand RPM and uh, about a hundred inches per minute, and that works out like it's it's a four times larger diameter cutter at one quarter the speed so that's about the same surface footage that i'm getting on the nomad with the eighth inch cutter and so that's why i figured 300 sfm is about a good guideline to go with yeah i mean it, it cutting wax is like cutting air though <laughs> i'm sure at some point it, it would melt if i ran like too slow and too slow feed rate too high rpm um which is definitely yeah so i'm just curious to see if if you had any issues with a higher SFM and it seems like the answer is yeah, no. Yeah, no, and I, I didn't push it because I really didn't have that much material to remove. Um, like I, I had a round bar in the vise and it was only taken off like the front, or about three millimeters into the bar to machine my part. So it wasn't really a good test. It wasn't, I wouldn't consider that my machinable wax uh, material test. I'll, I might do one of those later where I'm really just pushing the machine out, see how far it can go in that material. And then going back from there and trying to develop some good speeds and feeds uh, to share. But um, no, this was just like, I just happened to pick wax because I was testing out some cam techniques. I wanted to see uh, results quickly. Um, and I didn't want to run it in titanium. The final part was going to be titanium, but I just ran it wax to develop the cam. And then I was going to adjust the speeds and feeds for the final part. But uh, the main thing I was trying to do was get, um, I'm trying to work out a way to do a parallel finish type pass but with tool tilt so i've been using so basically flow yeah flow but using it more like a um like flow seems to work more like more spiral most of the time it kind of you know if you're working over like an organically cur or you know a curved part it kind of seems to follow the curve but um some geometry just makes it it naturally like what fusion spits out is basically a parallel tool path, but it's following the Z, you know, the Z is changing, right? So it's kind of following that, but it's other than that, it's just going back and forth. Didn't look any, like if you don't put tool tilt, it looks exactly like parallel. I don't see it really doing anything different than what parallel would do. Um, but you can, since you have flow, you can dial in tool tilt with a ball in mill. And I was testing that, trying to see uh, if I would get a better finish than I would with parallel by getting the ball in mill off its tip. And I did it in wax and I did not, it actually, I didn't, I ran more spiral. I ran the, my, you know, my funky version of flow and I ran regular parallel and I wasn't happy with the finish in wax in any of them. And it's probably just cause I don't know, I didn't have either the right tool or don't have the right speed and feed or strategy for wax. I don't know anything about machine, machinable wax and getting a good finish on it. Um, it kind of left little fuzzies like all around the edges. Could be that strategy works fine in metal. Really? I'm going to send you some pictures of the wax that I cut. All of my edges are pretty clean. No, they were clean until I did the finishing pass, right? I mean, actually the part looked better 
after the roughing <laughs> than it did when I was done with the finishing. So um, I'm not sure what that was all about. Just I don't think I knew what I was doing in that material. Um, I saw the I saw the Millennium Falcon that uh, was it a spree cam did on their pocket and see that in wax and that same exact same wax I'm using from the looks of it, and that that was like amazing. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I know it's a good material and I should be able to get much better results than I got. But anyway, yeah, I actually and I ran that same flow kind of flow as a parallel with tilt strategy and some aluminum and also was not happy with the results. So it, it did not beat more spirals. So again, it's probably, I think the, the challenging part with the flow is you don't really have a step over to adjust, right? It's more pat, you, you set the number of passes. Um, so you gotta do a little bit of, you gotta kind of do a little bit of a uh, math to figure out the surface area, right? What are you actually, you know, what would be the equivalent number of passes to get to the step over you want? Even then, it, have you tried doing a parallel where you um, just alter your your z axis, your your tool orientation, to come in at a slight angle? Ooh, no, but that's actually is there tool orientation? Mm, actually, that might work. I never thought of that. But that, but it still wouldn't follow your. Would it follow the it geometry? It would adjust your... dynamically, but as long as you set that angle to something greater than the 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 slope of your part. Um, it will uh, force the tool to not contact at the yeah, tip. That's an idea. I could give that a try. I have, I, you know, I, I've said it before on the podcast, but like the one unappreciated uh, <laughs> finishing strategy here in this shop is parallel. I hardly ever use it, and I probably should be using it a lot more, um, just because I really like most of the time. I like what more spiral does for me. Um, but yeah, I see uh, everybody else. I see gets much better. Res- results with parallel than I get with parallel. So I know I'm still got some work to do on it. Just haven't used it enough to really get good, uh, good set of parameters for it in aluminum. So I might work on that with the 7075. So we'll see. By the way, I just texted you a picture of a uh, wax part I did. Um, if you want to get a, a quick, uh, just comparison of whether or not it is as fuzzy as your parts. Oh, there's no fuzz on yours. So, <laughs> so yeah. yeah, that's um, that's the results. Winston showed me looks a lot like uh, what I saw on the uh, Esprit Cam part. It's they look like they're, you know, like you have a mold there. Basically, it's perfect. Uh, really good surface finish on that. So I have I don't know if it makes a difference. Like I was using the blue wax. I don't know if they're like different hardnesses, but the I'm pretty sure the wax I use. It looks exactly like what this recam is using. Yours is the orange, orange stuff, probably a little denser or less dense. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'll, um, I don't know. I don't know if I have anything more going on with wax until I start working on some. Uh, I wanted to kind of work on some silver casting this year, but I don't know if I'm gonna get around to that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this wax will work for it, um, but I, I plan on asking some some people who do casting whether or not. It'll work. I'll send them apart. They'll see if they can melt it out. And uh, if we can, that'd be great. Yeah, actually, it works pretty good for the like silicone molds too, right? That's, I've seen some uh, stuff made. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should wrap it up. And uh, I will probably uh, hopefully thaw out before our next podcast. <laughs> it's going to be cold in Montana. Yeah, just just <laughs> make sure like you keep all your fingers because we need you to edit the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, actually, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, just officially, I know we touched on the Autodesk Cam Challenge, but congrats, Chris, for uh, scoring fifth place. Yeah, I'd say congrats to everyone, but yeah, I'm, um, 
Chris, our guest from last last episode of DFX, uh, basically was representing for the uh, hobby hobby machinist. I don't know if any other hobby machinist made it into the into a place position there. I think um, you got an honorable mention, which was great. But fifth place, you've you've done us proud, Chris. All the other winners were you know big machine uh, entries, so that was really cool to see a, a desktop class machine do that well um, and a desktop machinists do that well so yeah congrats chris all right good night winston enjoy your trip and good night all right thanks